Back in 2013, Twitter released a platform called Vine. Anybody remember Vine? It released Vine, which on that platform, individuals could post videos of a maximum length of six seconds. And part of that platform came a trend in 2013 and 2014 where people would embolden themselves with this catchphrase, do it for the Vine. And people would, when this was spoken, they would do something daring. They'd shout, do it for the Vine, meaning do it for the popularity. Do it for the glory of a viral video. Do it for the entertainment of America. Do it for the cause. Do it for the Vine. And when someone shouted, do it for the Vine, what always followed was an emboldened individual who would do something that would bring them an experience of shame, temporal suffering, pain, things like this. And... I want to point out that 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, at the time of our letter in Thessalonians, there was no vine and there was no Twitter. Even now there is no vine. It came and went. But Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians 2 as he begins this autobiographical section. He says, this is what motivates me to do the things that I do. And he says, this is why he, Silvanus, and Timothy were so bold to do what they did among the Thessalonians. He said, we were emboldened for a purpose but it wasn't for popularity, it wasn't for entertainment, it wasn't for any kind of self-glory. He says, though it brought a degree of pain, shame, and suffering, they did what they did for the cause. Keith and Kristen Getty got it right in the words we just sang. They said, for the cause of Christ the King, we give our lives as an offering until all the earth resounds with ceaseless praise to the Son. That's the cause that emboldened Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. They went to sow faith and reap joy. They went to see people put their trust in the Son of God, to free the poor and the oppressed for lasting peace, life, and liberty in the Son. They emboldened themselves. They were bold in the gospel for the mission that the gospel might go out for every man, woman, and child in the world to hear it. That's the cause. And this was worth more to them than any pain or temporal suffering that they could have experienced, they were motivated for the cause. Let's look to our text this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you haven't been with us, we've been moving slowly through this book of looking at the example of this faithful church to learn how our faithful church might become even more faithful. And Paul continues today in chapter 2 as we look toward this chapter. He says, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers that are coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, as they wrote this book, had a preoccupation with the gospel. And as we move through, we'll define exactly what that means, but suffice it for here to know, the gospel means literally good news. And when you read Thessalonians, it, has, it means specifically the proclamation of the good news, the proclamation publicly of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it's mentioned six times in this book, And four of those six mentions is right here in the opening verses of chapter two. This is 
evangelistic. It's in the air that they breathe here. Paul says to the Thessalonians, even in the introduction of the letter, chapter one, verse five, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says here in chapter two, verse two, we had the boldness to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Verse four, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Verse eight, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. In verse nine, he says, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And so of course, this faithful book to a faithful church is centered around the gospel. And the gospel will be centered in any faithful church. You will see all of the members of a faithful church orbiting this topic. We talk about keeping the main thing, the main thing in churches. We talk about this all the time in church. This is the main thing. This is what we, why we do what we do. This is, Paul says, not just good news, it's the good news. It's, it's greater than all the other news you've ever heard. It's the gospel. He says it's the gospel of God. And most importantly for us, he says it's our gospel. It has become yours through hearing it and through faith and through belief. And church, this is why we exist as a church, is it not? We believe because of the gospel. It is in this that we live and move and have our being. It's this is the central point of all of human history. This is our security. This is our hope in, in this life and in the next. It all centers around the good news. It's good news, Paul says. It's the good news. And so I'm going to argue this morning that for that reason, it is worthy to be proclaimed. It's worthy to be declared. And in chapter 2, he says it must be proclaimed, and you are to be the one to proclaim it. And this great section in these four verses tells us five reasons why we must proclaim the gospel. And it begins in verse one, we'll move through them slowly. He says, number one, because the proclamation of the gospel is never in vain. It always accomplishes what the Lord has for it. Verse two, he's gonna say, because you are emboldened to preach it and you're to do it regardless of the circumstances that you're in. Verse three, he's gonna say, you must proclaim the gospel because your message and your motives are pure. Verse four, because you're approved and entrusted with it. And again in verse 4, Paul will say, you are to proclaim the gospel because it pleases God that you do it. And so with that said, verse 1, you must preach the gospel because the proclamation of the gospel is never in vain. Read verse 1 with me again. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And so there's something we have to understand as believers as we look and open the Bible and seek its truths, and it's that... When you preach the truths of the Bible, you experience the power of God in this world. It comes only through preaching the truth. And the word in scripture is pictured as a sword, is it not? The word is a two-edged sword. That's why Hebrews says, for the word of the Lord is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of joints and spirit, or soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word is a sword, and if you hear it and you preach it, you will be cut because it shows you your own soul. It's a mirror. It's a window that you look in and see yourself. It, it discerns the thoughts and intents of your heart, and for that reason, it cuts more than any physical instrument ever could, and it goes out, Paul says, accomplishing exactly what the Lord intended for it to accomplish. There's always activity 
when you preach the word. And when you preach, there's always a response. And I remember Raleigh Sadler came from New York City to OBU, and he ended up coming to Heritage and leading some of our people on uh, to teach us how to care for the vulnerable in our city. And I remember he came and led, Charles Meshek went with me and a few others, and he took us downtown and he said, your purpose is to preach the gospel, but today, just as a church, but he says, today I actually want you to come and talk to, he said, take me to the, where, where the most vulnerable in your city are. And the OBU students went straight downtown, right here. And he said, I want you to talk to these people and to get to know them, and I want you to, to not preach the gospel. Just this one time, I remember we went up with a couple of us to a group, a little homeless encampment, and as we're talking, it was amazing, by the way, how much they opened up when you just care about them and you don't uh, try and come hitting them with this message. But as they began open, opening up, one of the ladies began to preach the gospel. And it was incredible what happened in that moment because there was a visceral response on the part of all of the people. There was a few individuals that immediately got up and left. Some of them quietly, some of them cursing God, saying, we don't want to hear that message. There was another individual who was drawing, and he continued to draw. It really didn't seem to affect him much. And there was another group that leaned in and began to ask questions. And they were interested, and they were praising God because of the words that this woman was speaking. And is that not what happens every time the gospel's preached? What happened when Paul preached the message in Thessalonica? Some believed and a church was planted. Others persecuted him, ran him out of the city, threw him into jail, right? And such it always is when the gospel is preached. The same thing happened in Ephesus. When Paul preached there, there was tremendous activity. He preaches and some people were saved and changed their lifestyles immediately. They began to take their magician books out in the middle of the city and to burn them publicly. Uh, some the prophets from their sale of shrines began to decrease. It says in Acts that the city was filled with confusion, and it says that a riot happened. So what happens when you preach the gospel? There is activity. You know what didn't happen when Paul preached the gospel? Nothing. Nothing never happens when you are faithful to proclaim the word of God. And so if you do not experience the power of God in your life and in your ministry, it might be because you don't presume to speak on behalf of God. If you want to see the power of God in your life and your ministry, you must speak. He says, we are emboldened and we are trusted, therefore we speak, Paul says. You'll see the power of God manifested in the world. This is what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 55 verse 10. You know this passage as well. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall never return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And the word vain is literally the word empty. That's the word from our passage today. If something is empty, if it's vain, it means it's empty. It's no thing at all. And Paul says in the declaration or the proclamation of God's word is never empty. Isaiah confirms it will always accomplish something. And Paul says in verse 1, if you remember last week, we talked about his reception. He says, you remember the kind of reception that I had among you. And if you weren't here, we learned that that word reception could be misleading, making you think that he's talking about the kind of hospitality that he had 
when he stepped into the Thessalonian church. And he says that the emphasis is not on the reception that Paul had among them, but it was on the manner in which he entered. That's why the King James said, you know what kind of entering in we had among you. That's the same word that shows up again in chapter two, verse one. He mentions again his reception among them. It's translated again, our entering in among you. He's focusing on Paul's entrance into the Thessalonians. And he says, the way I entered into you, my entering in among you was not in vain. And you say, why? Because he preached the gospel. He came into there with pure heart, pure motives, preaching a pure word. It's fruitful, he says. It accomplished something because God's word went forward. And Martin Luther knows and wrote a lot about the power that is contained in the gospel and the source of the power that comes in this world. And he wrote in, or he spoke in his final sermon in Eiselben, Germany in 1536. These were some of the last words that Luther, Luther spoke in his final sermon. He said, you think that there's power in the relics that you travel to see and venerate in your many pilgrimages. You think there's power in Moses' staff, in Joseph's steps, in Pilate's steps, and in Mary's milk. That's not where the power is. God put the power in the word. That's where it is. And he might say to our own day, we don't go venerating all of these Catholic relics, but we might say there's not power in our church campuses or in our beautiful buildings. We think there is. There's no power in those things. There's no power in the charisma of a preacher. And there's no power in the business savvy of the executive leadership team of your church. The power is not in those things. God put the power in the word. And so that's why one reformer said, Christ reigns whenever he subdues the world to himself by the preaching of the gospel. If you want to see God's power in this world, you have to open your mouth and preach the word. Second reason, moving to verse two, second reason you must proclaim the gospel is because you are emboldened to do it. Do you have the Holy Spirit in your heart? You are emboldened to do it, and you are emboldened to do it regardless of your external circumstances, regardless of your internal state of mind. Paul says in verse two, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So what Paul's doing here is he's showing that he is a life and blood example of what it means to embody the gospel. And you don't need me to tell you this, you know that it's not just living out the gospel, you have to live the gospel so you have the, the platform so that you can open your mouth and speak the gospel, don't you? It's both and, you must live it and you must preach it. And Paul gives himself as a testimony saying, we already suffered and were shamefully treated at Philippi. Again, they're, they're in Macedonia. They, they understand the Thessalonian church and knows the Philippian church. They're close enough that they've heard the report and remember what happened to Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy at Philippi. They were beaten and they were whipped. They were put in prison. And while they were there, their feet were fastened to the stocks. It says here they were, quote, otherwise shamefully treated, end quote. And for, for what? for rescuing a slave girl from the oppression that she was experiencing in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why. They were arrested unjustly. They were stripped of their clothes. The Roman citizenship was violated. All this because they preached the word. 
And when they suffered physically, Paul says they suffered beforehand. And that word means physical suffering, but it also implies psychological suffering. Because though we have the joy of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter how strong we are in our faith to, to have this kind of thing happen to you. Yes, they sang hymns in prison, but it affects you psychologically too, does it not? They're going through this together. It says they were shamefully treated. This is the same word used in Acts 14.5. And there it says, but the people of the city were divided. As we've seen, that's always the case when the gospel's preached. It said, an attempt was made by Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them. And to be shamefully treated is the same word that's translated here, to be mistreated. And in Acts, it meant to physically be martyred and stoned and to be murdered. And so this isn't just to be shamefully treated in our day. It doesn't carry the same weight as to be shamefully treated in that day. Shame was much bigger deal in their culture. And he says, we were shamefully treated. We were mistreated in Philippi. And you know this. But if you could ask Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, was it worth it? What do you think they would say? Amen. They would say it was absolutely worth it. Was it worth it? Yes. Because through their sufferings, just like through your sufferings and your preaching of the gospel, men, women, and children will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because it pleases God to move through his gospel. And so by the foolishness of what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy preached, men, women, and children came to faith, and the church at Philippi was born. And now you have a letter that you can read to the Philippian church, and it's a joyful letter, and you ought to read it. And it's there because Paul had the boldness, and not only did he have the boldness to preach the gospel there, to be thrown in prison, to have his feet in the stocks, to be beaten within an inch of his life, and then he got up and he hobbled to Thessalonica, and he crossed the threshold of the synagogue, and he did it again. Knowing, you know, is he, is he an idiot, right? What's the definition of lunacy or insanity? He does, does it again and again and again, and he said, it's worth it because people are coming to faith. And he's obeying the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 23, when he told his disciples, when they persecute you in one city, what do you do? You go to the next city. This is how the early church planners went. When you experience persecution, you move on. You shake the dust from your shoes and you move on. That was their philosophy, and Paul says they didn't just preach, but they spoke boldly to represent their Lord. And the word speaking boldly means to speak freely, to speak openly, to be able to speak your mind without worrying about the consequences, which is what Paul did. He stepped into the Thessalonian church and he said, I'm going to preach the gospel and it doesn't matter what the result is. I have to be faithful to do it. And so he says it's, it's free. The, the word means to be free from the opinion of others, free from the fear of consequences, we're entrusted, Paul says, so we declare, and we declare with boldness. And if you're looking for a reason to not declare the gospel of God, you don't have to look very far. Because you've got lots of reasons that it's a bad idea to preach or to tell someone or to share the gospel. Your boss probably won't appreciate you sharing the gospel at work, will he? And you're busy. Sometimes you don't have time to go and share the good news. Maybe you don't think you're going to know the gospel well enough to be able to answer the inevitable questions that are going to be coming from your conversation partner. Maybe it'll make things awkward with your friends. The culture might ridicule you. And let me, let me rephrase that. The, the, the culture will ridicule you. And it might not generate the kind of response you want on social media. And so Paul speaks to our negative thinking and to our inner critic. 
And he says, we don't preach the gospel because it's going to please men. Because it can't, and it won't, and it never has, and it never will. He says, we preach because it pleases God. We preach the word and we share our faith because it pleases God. And to do this in the midst of all of this conflict and inner monologue and all of the persecution from your culture, it's going to take boldness. But you have it. You've been emboldened by the Holy Spirit to do this. To quote one song that Jeff always sings, that we sing together, you've got a lion inside of those lungs, get up and praise the Lord. You've got the Holy Spirit in you who will make you bold when the time comes to share his word and to declare his glory to anyone who will listen. This is your responsibility. Third, in verse three, he says, you must preach the gospel because your message and your motives are pure. And this isn't true for for every church, but it's true for a faithful church. Your gospel is not watered down. Your gospel is not incorrect. You as an individual are not... Uh, There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with uh, your church. And so he says, our appeal, verse three, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. And he says, and for this reason, we're bold. He says, first, there's no error in our message or even with us. And the word error means wandering from the path of truth, delusion, or deceit. In church history, not well, church history, but even secular history identifies two masters of suspicion is what they're called historically. One was Karl Marx, who said that there's something wrong with Christians. He says, there's something wrong with you. You have some kind of emotional or psychological or biological defect that makes you think that Christianity is a worldview worth championing. There's something wrong with you. You lack mental or emotional health and To him we say, there's no error in us. There's nothing wrong with us. We have warrant for our belief and we have warrant for sharing what we believe. And he says at the same time, the error can't just be with us, there can be no error in our gospel. And here is where you need to lean on your church and make sure that the gospel that comes forth exercise your spiritual keys to the kingdom to make sure that what we preach is pure. And to make sure that the gospel that you know and are proclaiming is pure and you don't water it down, but rather speak boldly to make sure truth is communicated. He says, there's no error, Paul says, in our message. There's no error in us. We were handed a pure gospel to those who came before us and we will hand a pure gospel to our children and to their children. That's our task. He says, number two, not just from error, but our appeal did not spring from impurity. That word means literally a state of moral corruption. It's an impure motive. And Paul said that last week, didn't he? He already addressed this issue. He said, I didn't come to you like all of the philosophers and rhetoricians and orators. I didn't come to you like Cicero would come to you. I didn't come flattering you. I didn't come with my hand out expecting a paycheck. As he says, as a matter of fact, I worked night and day, never taking any money from you so that you would understand that my motive is pure. He says, there's, there's no moral corruption here. And the other master of suspicion was Sigmund Freud, historically, where he said, you come to Christianity because you are afraid. You look through your telescope and you see the universe and galaxies swallowing galaxies and you're terrified and so you create a God and you say, he's here and he's for me and he's good. And you say, we have impure motives. And contra him and contra the philosophers of our day, our motives, just like Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy's motives, must be pure, but we say they, they are pure. 
and we go and proclaim with pure motives. And finally, he says, not from deceit. There's no deceit. It means taking advantage through craft and underhanded methods. Deceit or cunning or conniving. He said, I'm not trying to pull one over on you. I'm not trying to fool you or trick you. This isn't a practical joke. He says, and even in the same way, we're not trying to peddle the gospel as if it's some kind of commodity that we can go around and hawk like indulgences. He says, we come to you not as wolves in sheep's clothing, but just declaring to you the truth. And today there are many wolves in sheep's clothing, both as pastors of churches and as parishioners of churches. And the greatest illustration that comes to my mind was when I used to do non-emergency medical transportation for Sooner Care. And I remember I would take some of the most desperate people in this world to and from the doctor. And there was a lady I got to know very well because I would take her to dialysis three days a week in this wheelchair van. And one day she was in the back of the van and we're talking and she's opening up her mail. And as she's opening a letter, she has a letter from her church. And it says, if you would like us to continue to pray for you, we haven't received a financial donation from you in a while. And if you'd like to continue receiving prayer from the leadership, we're gonna need your latest installment of $82 so that we can continue to pray for you. And she looked at me honestly asking, do you think that I should pay this so that they will keep praying for me? She got a bill in the mail from her church for prayer. I said, no, I don't think you need to pray for that. And as a matter of fact, I think you need to find a new church because a faithful church centered around the gospel does not attempt to rob you of your money for their own purposes. He says, we don't do it for, out of error. We don't do it out of impurity. We don't do it out of deceit. Our lives and our motives are pure. Fourth, verse four, we proclaim the gospel because we are approved by God to be entrusted with it. You're entrusted with the gospel. Verse four, he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. They've been approved by the living God. They've been entrusted with his message, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the entrust means to assign the responsibility for doing something to someone. You've been given the responsibility. It means to put something in someone else's care or protection. The gospel is now in your care and your protection. And as a church, we must propagate it and protect it. Paul has been assigned the responsibility of proclaiming the best news that the world has ever heard. And he says, for that reason, I must be faithful because it's the greatest privilege. It's the highest honor that any man or woman could ever receive. And by the way, it's your honor as well. And he says in 1 Timothy, to, to Timothy, one of the authors of this letter, he says, I've been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. To Titus, I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And you keep reading, Paul says, we've been approved. We've been entrusted. So we speak because we cannot be silent. You've been approved. You've been qualified. You've been entrusted. You have the boldness to not only live out this message, but church, we must be bold to speak it. Because, verse 4 goes on, the fifth reason, we proclaim the gospel Perhaps be because of all. Above all, it says, because it pleases God. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says the same thing. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases him. 
We preach Christ crucified, he says, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That right there, the fact that it is the power of God and it pleases him is the reason that we share the gospel, to display the power of God, to display the wisdom of God, and to save those who are called from an eternity of death. And so I ask you this, what if God, through your own boldness, to declare the foolishness of the gospel this week might save a soul from eternal damnation? Do you believe that? Yes. That there is power enough in the gospel that you preach that even this day or this week, God might deliver a soul from hell? Because this is God's mode of operating in the world. If you will be bold to preach, you will experience the power of God in your life. You will, it might be negatively, but you will experience the power of God. And there are untold billions of men and women and children in this world who do not yet know Jesus Christ and who is going to preach to them? God asked that question in Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And your answer has to be, here I am, send me. Who in this room is bold enough to pack up their bags and your children's bags and to go to a new culture and a new society and even learn a new language and to tell people this foolish news, to preach the wisdom and the power of God? And if you're not willing, God does not call all to go to overseas, but he calls some. And I believe he's going to call some out of this congregation if we will be bold enough to go. But if you are not called to go, Will you be called to stay and to stay intentionally? To stay and to make sure that the gospel is told in the kids' area so that our children receive the pure gospel to declare to their children? Will you be bold enough to stay and to open your mouth so that your coworkers and your church and your neighbors understand the truth? Because it pleases God when we preach the good news abroad and it equally pleases God when we, we preach the good news here. And whether we are called to stay or whether we are called to go, our answer must be yes. And so I pray that all of you will search your hearts and pray to God how he might use you. But regardless of whether you stay or you go, it says we are entrusted, so we speak. As you approach the end of the book of Matthew, this gets our point across strongly. In that book, there's a, a strange preoccupation with this little place in Palestine called Galilee and a place Jesus ministered, but it keeps coming up kind of out of nowhere. Matthew 26, 32, before Jesus ever dies, Jesus says to his, tells his disciples to meet in Galilee after his resurrection. Now, I'm not sure they had any capacity to understand what that meant, but he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And then you need to meet me. We're going to rendezvous in Galilee. Matthew 28, verse 7. The angel at Jesus' grave tells Mary to go and remind the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. Matthew 28, 10, the very first words of the resurrected Jesus Christ is greetings, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. It's very important, whatever this is. He says, then there they're going to see me. Matthew 28, 16, the disciples in the very final paragraph of the book go and arrive at Galilee. 
And in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, you finally get to see what was so significant. As everybody is gathered there in the final words of the book, you see that the church receives its great charge. And some call it the great commission. We see what was so significant about Galilee because Jesus says to his church, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus says, this is what is important. This is the focal point of your life and of your faithful church. This is the reason for your existence. Go therefore and make disciples, baptize and teach. And you see the value here is the value of our church. This is what we do, is it not? We value theological education. We value raising men and women and equipping them for the work of the ministry. That's the theological education side of our ministry, but then at the same time, we want to care for the vulnerable in our city, do we not? We care about biblical justice. We care about the welfare of our city. Where do those two things marry? Why do we do all of these things? And the answer is so that the gospel will have a path forward, so that we can make disciples, so that our light may shine in the darkness, so that we can preach Christ and him crucified. We can preach the gospel. What is that gospel? In 2017, this was a, a tremendous year if you're a Protestant because it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, I went in that year to a very large party uh, in LA where they were celebrating 500 years of faithful preaching of Jesus Christ and a pure, undiluted gospel. And I remember as I went to celebrate with all of these thousands of pastors, what came out of that conference was one of the best statements that I've ever heard summarizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here it is. It read like this. We preach Christ, who is the eternal son, one in nature with the eternal father and the eternal spirit, the triune God, who is the creator and life giver, as well as the sustainer of the universe and all who live in it, who is the virgin born son of God and son of man, fully divine and fully human who is the one whose life on earth perfectly pleased God and whose righteousness is given to all who by grace through faith become one with him, who is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin that pleases God, whose death under divine judgment paid the penalty for the sins of his people, providing for them forgiveness and eternal life, who is alive, having been raised from the dead by the Father, validating his work of atonement and providing resurrection for the sanctification and glorification of the elect to bring them safely into his heavenly presence, who is at the Father's throne, interceding for all believers, who is God's chosen prophet, priest, and king, proclaiming truth, mediating for his church, and reigning over his kingdom forever, who will suddenly return from heaven to rapture his church, unleash judgment on the wicked, bring promised salvation to the Jews and to the nations, and establish a millennial reign on earth, who will, after that reign, destroy the universe, finally judge all sinners and send them to hell, and then create the new heavens and the new earth where he will dwell forever with his saints in glory and love and in joy. That is the Christ that we preach. And that is the Christ that you must preach to open your mouth and to speak. Proclamation, preservation, and propagation of that message is our sole responsibility in this world or is our premier responsibility in this world. You've been approved by God to be entrusted with it. And so you must declare it to your children and to your church 
and to your friends and to your city. And I pray to God that through this church to the nations, because that's what we're called to do. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you've been improved and entrusted with that message. He says, we preach it because when we preach the gospel, it will never be in vain. Its word will never return void, but will always accomplish its purpose. We preach it boldly because it's the message that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we're unashamed of it. And we preach it purely so that our sinful hearts or our watered down message will never get in the way of somebody hearing about the good news of their savior. And the gospel went out because Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were bold enough to go and preach it even when it was hard. And the gospel will continue to go out if you are bold enough to go and to proclaim it even when things are hard. They were approved and entrusted with the gospel and you are improved and entrusted with that same gospel. So go now and make Christ known.